so in my house growing up, we, uh, Christmas Eve for a lot of us is like a really cool, fun day. Uh, my house growing up, Christmas Eve was the day, the one day a year where we did all of our spring cleaning, like in, in the winter. And so I was like a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, and, and uh, my dad was a military, uh, had a military background, and so um, it was uh, cleaning everything, disinfecting everything. It was wiping down baseboards and fan blades. Um, it was scrubbing toilets, washing all beddings, including comforters and everything. And it was just the long, uh, most miserable day of the entire year. And uh, I remember a lot of times thinking about how awful this was, how unfair it was. Nobody else has to do this. And, and my parents were quick to remind me that, um, that, number one, how thorough of a job we did uh, also, how efficient we were and the attitude with which we did it all directly was directly linked to whether or not Santa was going to come and visit us the next day. And I remember it was, I had an older sister and we were miserable, but we knew we couldn't complain. We had to smile and pretend that this is the one thing we wanted to do on Christmas Eve. And, and, but we always would remind ourselves of what we knew was coming ahead, that no matter how bad the day was, no matter what poor job we got tasked with, um, we always knew that we had something, forward to, look, something to look forward to. We, we knew that every Christmas Eve, we were going to go out as a family. We were going to go out to dinner. We didn't go out a lot when I was growing up, so that was a really special thing. Um, we knew that my parents both worked full-time jobs and that on December 27th, they were going back to work. But we didn't have to go back to school till like January 3rd. So we knew we were going to have a week without our parents. Like, this is, this is going to get better. And we knew that there was going to be a mountain of presents waiting for us in the morning. And so we would remind ourselves and each other that like, hey, no matter how bleak it is, no matter how bad it is right now, there's always something to look forward to. And we're seeing that as we are walking through the book of Romans, Romans 11, Romans 9 and 10, if you were part of the last couple of, of conversations about the past and the present of the nation of Israel, their access to the gospel, but then their rejection of it, and what do we do with that? It's kind of been like this, this place where it's like, man, we're we're focusing a lot on, on the, the negative. And what Paul is going to do in chapter 11 is he's going to cast our eyes towards what the, the promise is, towards what lies ahead, towards the future glory, the future glory for the nation of Israel. But if you remember back to the end of Romans chapter 8, we talked about the future glory that awaits us, that no matter what we experience in this life, like no matter what difficulty comes our way, that God is going to use it somehow, not necessarily in this life, but somehow he is going to use it for good because he's promised that that's what he does. And that we too look forward to the future glory. That things right now may not be going your way. Things right now may seem bleak, but we look forward with what God's gonna do. And so as we enter Romans chapter 11, just keep that in mind because that's, that's where Paul is, is moving this thing for what is the, the, the conclusion gonna be for the Jewish people. And so in verse number one of, of Romans 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I, am, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says back to chapter nine, the question of what, what's happened with Israel is God rejected them. He says, well, if God rejected them, I wouldn't be here. Paul, who wrote the, the book of Romans, wrote this letter to this church, uh, is making the point that I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew, there are not a lot of Jews in the Roman church, but he says, I'm one of them. If God had completely rejected his own people, I wouldn't be here. Not to mention the, the 12 disciples who were all Jewish by birth 
or the beginning of the church in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit came down on the, the day of Pentecost and they were all gathered together and thousands of people said yes to Jesus in an instant. They were all Jews. So Paul says, so Paul says no, God hasn't rejected the entire nation. Like it was a national rejection. It wasn't a personal rejection. It's like at times uh, in our history, America has been referred to as a Christian nation. If we're a Christian nation, does that mean every single person who is an American is a Christian? Like, no, you can have a national title, a national declaration, but that doesn't mean everybody believes it. And you can have a national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, but that doesn't mean that on a personal level, that means the establishment, the religious leaders, the structure of the day has rejected the Messiah, but every one of them still gets an individual choice. And, and Paul is reminding them that along the way, there have, there have always been some. From there, he goes on in the next couple of verses and he talks about Elijah who was a prophet who felt like he was the only one left. And God shows him this, this group of 7,000 that, that he's protected that nobody knows about. But he says, always remember that God has a remnant. There's always gonna be a group. And he goes on in Romans 11, uh, verse number five, and he says, it is the same today. So when Paul wrote this, and then I think it's still the same today, 2,000 years later, but it's the same today. For a, few for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. It says the number of Jewish believers may be small, but there's always gonna be a remnant. Today, we refer to them as Messianic Jews. Uh, a Messianic Jew is someone who believes that Jesus was the Messiah. In general, Jews don't, they believe Jesus was a, a prophet, maybe he's a good man, a humanitarian, but they're still watching for the Messiah that was promised in all of the Old Testament writings. So a Messianic Jew is someone who, who says, no, I believe Jesus was the guy. A couple famous ones today, Josh Groban. Josh Groban uh, professes to be a Messianic Jew. Lenny Kravitz does as well. Like that they say, yes, like this, this is, uh, Judaism is our tradition, but we believe that Jesus is the guy. And so even though those numbers may be small, there's always going to be a remnant. God's movement is always going to move forward. The church is going to continue to advance. Jesus promised that nothing can stop the church. Like even in, in our day and time, as we look at what's, what's happening around us, we may ask the question, like, what is, what is the, the hope of the church? What is the future of the church? We may not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we can be certain of this. The church is going to continue to move forward. Things may look bleak, but God is always moving. God is always active and working, even when we don't see it. God's doing things in Clayton that you and I may be unaware of right now. One of my favorite stories is what happened with the, the church in China in uh, the 1950s, there was a systemic purge of Christianity and all of the missionaries, all of the Western missionaries were kicked out. And when they left, it was estimated that in China, there were about 2 million followers. So around 1950, 2 million followers of Jesus in China. During the cultural revolution of the 1960s, places of worship were demolished. All senior leaders were killed. Second and third chair leaders were either killed, tortured, or imprisoned. All public gatherings were banned under the threat of death or persecution. And then in the early 1980s, China began to open up a little bit again, and they began to let the Westerners back in. And when the Western missionaries came back in in the 1980s, they thought for certain that Christianity would be extinct. Like, there's no way Christianity survived what they dealt with over the last 30 years. And when they let the missionaries back in 30 years later, they found that not only had Christianity survived, it flourished. They found that when they left, there were 2 million followers of Jesus in China. And when they came back in the 1980s, they found that there were 60 million followers of Jesus 
under extreme persecution. Today, that number has grown to over 100 million followers of Jesus. Like Jesus' church cannot be stopped. The mission cannot be stopped. Even though things look bleak at times, God has always preserved a remnant. God has always protected a remnant. And he says the same thing about the nation of Israel, that there are always going to be people that are of descendants of of Abraham, that are Jews that are going to follow Jesus, that are going to recognize him as the Messiah, even if the majority of them do not. And then in verse 7, he says, so this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the one God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and close their ears so they do not hear. This is another, we talked about this in Romans 9, but this is another one of those difficult verses because on the surface, it appears as if God, who is the sovereign ruler, is just up in heaven having a bad day, and his response to that is to kick the dog, and we're the dog, and he goes, I'll just, I'm just going to harden your heart. God's just up in heaven going, you know what would be fun? Let's make people who are seeking truth incapable of discerning the truth. Let's just blind their eyes. Let's put them into a deep sleep. And it almost appears on the surface that that's what's happening. But you've got to understand who Paul is quoting in the Old Testament, and you also have to take into consideration what we talked about in chapter 9 when he used Pharaoh as the case study for God hardening the hearts of people. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart when Moses went to Israel, went to him to ask him to release the people of Israel. But it also says that 10 different times in that same passage, in the passages surrounding it, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it's not like God took a good guy and was like, let's have some fun and let's make his heart hard. God took a man who already wanted the destruction of Israel. God took a man who was already for evil. And the word for harden in the book of Exodus, when it talks about God hardening his heart, is the word that means to confirm. So what it means is that God simply confirmed what was already in Pharaoh's heart. That Pharaoh had already chosen the path of wickedness and God simply allowed him to go down the path that he had already chosen. And so when he talks about, he says, as scripture says, you know, he's quoting someone from the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah when he says, God has put them into a deep sleep. He's quoting Isaiah 29. But Isaiah 29 is Isaiah paraphrasing something that Moses said in Deuteronomy. So he's taken two ancient leaders, two ancient respected leaders, and he's saying this is what they said, and he's bringing it into the present day context. He's quoting Uh, Isaiah, who's paraphrasing Moses, when Moses said, it is the rebellion of the heart that results in God giving spiritual blindness. So again, it's not as if God just sits up in heaven and goes, you seem like a nice guy, but I don't think I like you. So I'm going to harden your heart. I'm going to put you into a deep sleep. No, God has chosen to give us in the end, ultimately what we want. The path that we've chosen, he is confirming that. When he hardens your heart, what he's doing is, is he's simply releasing you to the path that you've already chosen and what you already want. What, Mo, what Paul is saying as he's paraphrasing Moses is that God prevented them from seeing what they already didn't want to see and what they already refused to believe. That's what he's talking about with the Jews in the first century and today. That God is making them incapable of seeing what they've already chosen that they don't want to, what they don't want to see and what they've already chosen that they don't want to believe. And then he asks the question, so what does this mean for for Israel? Like, does this mean that they're done? It's like a breakup. Is is this breakup permanent? 
Those of us that used to watch Friends, every time Ross and Rachel broke up, it's like, are they, is, this, is, it, is this it for them? Or are they going to eventually get back together? So it's like, man, so God and, and Israel, like, are they done? And he says in verse number 11, he says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Is this irreparable? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. So this is, this is where we as non-Jews, we as Gentiles come into the conversation. It was the rejection of the Jews, that was what God used to open the door of the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, which includes most, if not all of us. And we are here today because of the national rejection of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. In fact, had the Jews embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the whole kingdom thing that we've been talking about, Jesus would have established that once and for all right then and there 2,000 years ago. So we are now included in it. And so he says the disobedience of the Jews, the rejection of the Jews, opened the message to the entire world, which is always the plan, by the way. When God promised Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, when he promised him that he would, that he would bless him, he said, through you, all nations or families or ethnicity groups of the world, all of them through you would be blessed. He was talking about the coming of the Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. So we were always a part of it, but God used the rejection of the Jews to be the vehicle, to be the opportunity to open the door that would one day invite us in. But then he says he wanted his own people, now that we have received what was theirs, now that we've received it, it says God wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves, which seems weird because like jealousy is bad, right? Like there's no Bible that says God blesses those who are jealous. Like I've, I haven't read that chapter or seen that verse yet. So, so why, do, why is he saying he wants his people to be jealous? Like if God is holy and God is good, then why would he want his people to do something that appears on the surface to be uh, exhibit an, an evil behavior or an evil attitude? But if you really start to dig into jealousy, not all forms of, of jealousy are bad. Like jealousy is good or bad based on a few things. Number one, what is desired? Number two, whether or not you have the right to its possession. And number three, do you have to hurt someone in order to get it? In that sense, jealousy can be a great motivator if it's for something that's good, if it's for something that you have a right to possess, and if it's not going to hurt anybody uh, along the way. Things like getting an education. Like maybe a friend of yours got an education and got a job and you don't want to take that from them, but you go, man, I, like, if I work hard, I think I could have that too and then we could both have it. It's not like one or the other, like, hey, this is something we could, have, we could both enjoy together. Getting an education, getting in shape, getting someone's attention, all of these things can be good things. They can be bad, but they can all be good things as well. Uh, guys, let me talk to the married guys in the room for a minute. Um, think back to when you first met your wife. She had all of your attention, didn't she? You wanted, to, you wanted to win her over. We chased her. Eventually, we caught her. In the process, we went MIA to all of our friends. Like, we, we, were, we were completely off the grid. It was, it was her, and it was nothing else. But then what happened when we got married? Got married, maybe had a couple of kids, and the relationship got familiar. We started to take for granted that she would just always be there, stopped telling her how beautiful she was. We stopped showing her affection. We stopped telling her how happy she makes us. We stopped making her a top priority. And everything seems to be going fine because we've convinced ourselves that she's not going anywhere. 
But then all of a sudden, some other dude shows up and starts telling her how pretty she is, starts telling her how important she is, starts spending time with her, starts giving her attention. What, is, what all of a sudden happens for us? We get jealous, don't we? And guess what she has all of a sudden? She has all of my attention. Hopefully not like stalker, locker in the trunk of the car kind of attention, but the attention that, that re-engages the relationship, right? That all of a sudden we start telling her things that we've always known, but we just stopped telling her those things because we got familiar. But all of a sudden the, the entrance of someone else into the conversation has now motivated me to re-engage the relationship, to focus on making sure that she knows all of the things that I know, but I just haven't been telling her. That she knows and that she feels that she is a top priority in my life. That jealousy for us can be a motivator. And God wants to use this holy jealousy for the nation of Israel, that they would see what we have, that they would see that we've experienced the the, the, the richness that comes in following Jesus, that we've experienced everything that was once offered to them and that them seeing that through us would be something that, it, that is enticing to them, that is engaging to them, that they say, I want to experience that, not at our expense, but that they could experience it as well. He goes on in verse 12 and he says, now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. He's starting to cast our attention for what's going to happen. Like one day, the nation of Israel, in large number, the people of the descendants of Abraham will come to know Christ at alarming rates in, in large numbers. And we get to play a part in that. How much greater of a blessing the world you and I will share when they finally are open and receptive to it. He says, I'm saying all this, especially for you Gentiles, God has appointed me the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have so that I might save some of them. He's talking to largely a community of, of Gentile believers and he's challenging them and he's challenging us that we would live our newfound life in Christ in such a way that Jewish people and people who are far from God would be intrigued by it that they would see how we live our lives and the pursuit of Jesus that we have, that they would see how Jesus has changed our lives and that they would want the same thing. That as, that as ambassadors of Christ, we speak on his behalf. We talked about this last week. That as, as sent ones, as recipients of reconciliation, we are now ministers of reconciliation, helping people who are far from God experience what we've experienced. And so he's essentially asking this group of people and saying to this group of, of people, live your life in such a way that someone in their context, that someone who is a first century Jew would see what Jesus has done in your life and that they would want to experience the same thing. And it makes me ask the question, and I think every one of us needs to ask the question, do we live our life in such a way that people who are far from God would be intrigued by or drawn to what we have? Do you live a life do you live a gospel that others would be jealous of and want to experience for themselves? I'll be honest with you, I don't know that we do. I look at the state of, of Christianity in our world and our, our culture today. When I look at Christianity in general today, I see a lot of people who are uptight. 
See a lot of people who are, are judgmental. Like we, we claim to have victory, but we live every day in defeat. We claim to have the hope of the world living in us, but we operate out of a place of fear and we isolate ourselves from the very people that we are called to reach. Listen, we talk about experiencing the gospel, but then, we're, but then we're not sharing it with anyone. We're not living it in such a way that someone around us would look at us and go, I want to experience what they have. We're different, but I don't know that the different is intriguing. I think the different is more, it's more repelling. I was watching recently the, all of these political ads. Um, like you see these commercials and... And there's nothing hopeful about these commercials. Like it's all somber and harsh ads about all the things that they're against and how the other party is going to ruin your life and destroy your family and, you know, like hide your women, hide your children kind of uh, political ads. And, and, and they don't cast a vision for anything that's going to make the world brighter under their watch. They don't paint a picture of hope. They basically just say, vote for me because the, op- the other option is really bad. I'll be totally honest with you, I think a lot of times I watch Christianity portrayed today, and I think that's the message that we're sending to the world around us. Not follow Jesus because he'll change your life. Not follow Jesus because he'll give you hope, he'll give you peace. Doesn't mean your problems are going to go away, but you have the presence of the Spirit of Jesus living in you, and you begin to experience abundant life, the life that he promised, the life that we are all longing for, and the life that we're all chasing. We don't pitch that. Instead, we send out this message of come join us by living in fear. And we wonder why nobody's wanting that. Come join us in walking in defeat. They're like, we do that every day. We don't need Jesus. We don't need another hour of of our week to do that. Come join us in isolating ourselves from anybody and everybody that doesn't believe and value what we believe and value. And I look at the way we live our lives and I go, no wonder people who are far from God want no business with us. Are we living our lives in such a way that portrays hope? Are we sending this political message, hey, follow Jesus because the other option is really bad. And Paul says, live your life in such a way that it would stir a holy jealousy that they would see what you have, that they would see what you've experienced and and go, I want to experience the same thing. That we who are far from God have now been brought near. That because of the rejection of the Jews, we have been included in. He goes on talking about that in verse 16. He says, and since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. He's talking about the nation of, of Israel. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. So he uses this analogy of a tree, which is, which is common all throughout Scripture. And so Jesus is, is, is the base and all of the base of these branches. And for the Jewish people, that was what the intention was. But now because of their unbelief, they've been broken off. 
Breaking off all of these branches has resulted in what appeared to be something that was dying or something that was dead. But so then as he says now, so they've grafted in these, these new branches, which are, are you and I, those of us that are not Jewish, we're grafted in and a part of this, this tree. Uh, John Stott, who wrote a, a commentary called The Message of Romans, uh, rather than me trying to sound smart, I just want to read to you what he says about it. He says, in exceptional circumstances, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting it with a shoot of the wild olive so that the sap of the tree ennobles this wild shoot and the tree now again begins to bear fruit. So a, a, a wild olive branch is dynamic, it's growing, it's hungry, but it is able to uh, draw and produce life only because it's grafted into this new, this new tree. And the, the cool thing about the grafting process is that when you graft something in, it renews life to the, to the entire tree. So what appeared to be dead, the gospel, because of the rejection of the Jews, is now more alive than it's ever been because of the, of the inclusion of us. But then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, but you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, you are not the root. He says, it's, it's not all about you. You're not Ron Burgundy. You're not kind of a big deal. It's not all about us. We're not the first choice at the prom. We're the choice because the other girl he wanted to go with went with someone else. Like he says, get some perspective. Like you are a recipient in this. You are a beneficiary of this, but it's not about you. You may have brought life, but not only did you bring life, you experienced life. Reminds me of back in the, the 90s, 1993, the Atlanta Braves were uh, projected to be one of the best teams in the league, and about uh, hun almost 100 games into the season, uh, they, were, they were barely over 500, they were 10 games out of first place, they were going nowhere, and they were going nowhere fast. And they traded for a guy named Fred McGriff, and Fred McGriff came in and breathed life into the team, and they went 51 and 17 after they got him, they made made up a 10-game deficit in the division, won the division, went to the playoffs. And, um, and you would look at that and you would go, man, Fred McGriff could sit back and go, they are lucky to have me. And the reality is they, they, they were. Like, it was a benefit to the Braves. He breathed life into everything. But if I were on that team, the first time Fred McGriff said to me, you guys are lucky to have me, I'd be like, don't forget the team you were on. You were on a team that lost 100 games. You were making plans in October because you knew there was zero chance of you going to the playoffs. If it were not for us, you wouldn't be going to the playoffs. You may have breathed life, but don't miss, don't, but don't miss the point. You are a part of the solution. You are a part of the success, but you are not the point. And Paul says, for you and I, we have been recipients. We've experienced this gospel. We are benefiting from it. We are breathing life into something that was dying. But we are not the point. We are only a part of it. We are, we are beneficiaries of this message of the gospel. And he says, don't brag about it. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't ever reach the point that you think that God has something special in you. He says, always maintain perspective. Remember where you were and remember where you would be. When I remember who I was before Jesus and when I remind myself of where I would be without, without the cross, it's a perspective that is humbling. He says, don't think highly of yourself. Don't think you're the point. 
but continue to see the continue to see the bigger picture. Continue to long for and hope for the day when the nation of Israel will once again return to this relationship with God. And then as he starts to, to, to bring this to a close in verse 25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery. All the things that he's explained in chapter 9, 10, and the majority of chapter 11. This was all new information to the, the, Roman, the Roman believers. He says, I want you to understand this mystery dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will only last until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. We don't know when this is, but there's a day that is coming. Every day we get closer to it when that, when that moment will come, when the full number of Gentiles will, that are gonna come to Christ will. And at that point, you will begin to see Jewish people coming to know Christ in large numbers, and he says, we get to be a part of it. Like, we get to look forward to, that's part of the future glory for us, that we look forward to the day that, that this relationship will, will come back together. And, you know, as we've gone through, as we've gone through Romans 9 through 11, uh, I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of, I probably leave these chapters with maybe even more questions than answers, more questions that I came into it with. Uh, it was interesting, I was reading about uh, Romans 9 through 11 when we started this, started studying for this uh, series, and it is the most commonly skipped three chapters anytime a church does a series through the book of Romans. In fact, I read about a pastor who got up and he just said, uh, hey guys, Romans 11 is really a hard chapter, so uh, we're just going to pray and skip over it, and I'm like, nothing instills like confidence in people like that than the guy that's supposed to have some answers is going, I don't have any, so... Uh, you know, <laughs> Google it for yourself. But so uh, it's often skipped. And uh, I didn't want to skip it. I didn't want to race through it. Uh, it I, I think when we are aware of, of things that we can't understand and things that we can't reconcile, I think it's important that, that we don't shy away from it, that we're okay with it. That the questions that have come out in these chapters, like has God rejected his own people? He's answered the question, but we may not like the answer. Has he failed to keep his promises? Again, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If God, if the, the gospel moving from the Jews to the Gentiles is because of their rejection, then it means that God didn't keep his promise to the nation of Israel in order to include that, include us in that. What keeps him from keeping his promises to us if it means there's an opportunity to include someone else in it down the road? If he broke one promise, then it calls into question all of his promises. So the question has, been, has arisen, has he failed to keep his promises? Question that we've all had, but that's come up in these last few chapters is, is he fair? And we have answers to the questions, and a lot of the questions and answers we understand, but it doesn't mean we like them. And that only opens the door to other questions we have, questions that came out of, of Romans 8. Like, why does God allow things to come into our life that hurt us? Like, why does God need uncomfortable things in my life to conform me more to the image of Jesus? For some of you, other questions that it, that it raises is, you know, why did God allow your marriage to crumble? Why, uh, why did God let my loved one die? Why did God allow things like the, the racially charged shooting in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago and the other shootings that we see around this country? Why is God allowing what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and the ripple effect and things that are happening in Poland because of that? Like, why is God allowing all of this stuff to happen, abuse that exists in our world, injustice? Like, Why? And the reality is we can't answer all of the questions. 
But I think the important thing is, is that we recognize that we are going to have questions. And I love how Paul is going to close Romans chapter 11. Because, he, because he's addressed them, but he knows that I'm never going to give you full understanding of the mind of God or why God does things the way he does. So he essentially says, I'm going to stop trying. Like, like when we have questions that we can't answer, and I know some of you right now, you're walking through some things, and, and, and the why question is, is big in your mind. And I, and, and I want you to know that, that God is big enough for our questions. Like the things for me, when, when I have questions I, I can't understand, I always start, number one, by clinging to what I know. And for Romans 5 through 8, for four chapters, Paul preached nonstop things that you and I can know, that we can trust, that we can cling to. We cling to what we know and we trust God for the things that we don't. And then Paul closes the chapter by saying, in spite of all of that, we, just, we simply praise him. In verse 33, he says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For we know the Lord's thoughts. Who knows, uh, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? He tells us that God's grace is great, that his wisdom and knowledge are unmatched. It isn't even possible for our finite minds to understand his decisions and his ways. With that in mind, we don't even know enough to give him advice. Could you imagine Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, every Monday morning, pulling together a bunch of hungover fans, gathering them in his office and being like, all right, guys, let's talk about what went wrong yesterday. Like, like you guys helped me. Okay, now that you've done that, like, help me with the game plan for next week. Like, how long is Bill Belichick going to be the coach of the Patriots? Like, not very, right? Well, go, no, you're the guy that's supposed to be smart enough to have the plan and the, and the solution. We trust you because you have a track record of doing this. And the moment Belichick starts to ask you and I for advice, we start to question whether or not he really is capable and competent to sit in the seat he sits in. And yet the God of the universe, the sovereign ruler, we sit back and go, God, why don't you come and ask me for advice? God, why don't you get on board with my plan? And Paul says there's a lot of things about this that we don't understand. And so he comes back and he says, he says, just keep some things in mind. Like it's impossible for us to understand why he's doing what he's doing. We don't even know enough to simply give him some advice. Verse 35, and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? God owes none of us a thing. Like who in here would say God is indebted to me? Nobody. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. This is how he closes the section. It's almost like he just brushes past all of the things that we don't understand, but he's not doing that. Instead, he's bringing things into focus. He's saying we have a God that we can't understand. I'll be honest with you, a God that I can understand, 
a God who needs my input, advice, or counsel, a God who is indebted to me, is actually a pretty lame God. But we have a God that is so far superior. It's greater. It's more complicated. Who has a plan that we can't understand, a perspective that we can't see. Paul essentially says, I don't understand everything there is to understand about him. I just keep my eyes on him. And I just keep praising him. So we've walked through these chapters. There are some things about the nation of Israel that we don't understand. You've carried some things in here this morning that you don't understand. There's some roads ahead of you that are going to be difficult. They're going to be painful. And you're going to ask God along the way, God, why have you allowed this to happen? God, where are you? And Paul brings it back to the place it always comes back to. We don't understand, but yet we can always praise. We can praise the God who is sovereign, the God who has the perspective and the picture that we can't see. And right now, the only thing you may be able to do is praise him. But that's what we were created to do. So I want to invite you to join me in doing just that. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray and and then we're going to praise him. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for his greatness. Praise him for what he's done, even the things that he's done, the things that he's allowed that we don't understand. And so God, you are worthy of our praise. We can't understand you. You owe us nothing. We don't even know enough to give you advice. But yet you love us. You care about what we're walking through and experiencing. And we look forward to the future glory. No matter what we're walking through right now, no matter what we're experiencing, we know the promises of Romans 5 through 8 that we can cling to and we know the future glory that awaits us. And when we don't know what else to do, we praise you and we keep our eyes on what you've promised us. And so we do that now. You are great. You're worthy of our praise. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it. Amen.